Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 323 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. So glad that you are here with me today as we are talking to Jess Montgomery on writing as a spiritual practice, on mixing curiosity and compassion in your writing, and on those troll dolls that could get stuck in your writing couch. And we're going to tell you what that means, uh, or Jess will. And it was a fantastic conversation. So stick around for that. This is going to be a very short intro because I am traveling for the next two and a half weeks. So uh, three of these episodes will go live while I am gone. I am hoping that I get these batched out and done. I'm looking at the calendar. Yes, I think I should be able to do that. So I'm going to tell you what I am probably doing right now. As you are listening, this is what I hope I am doing in Oakland, California. I hope that I am at Tacos Mi Rancho. Tacos Mi Rancho is my favorite taco truck in Oakland, which is a large statement. Like we could argue Sinaloa, we could argue Taqueria Cancun in the city, um, but Tacos Mi Rancho is perfection. And here's why. It sits on this little triangle strip of dirt just around the corner from Lake Merritt, which is one of my favorite places to be. And their tacos are so good. They serve. So the best, the best is the chicken taco, the chicken super, which comes on two corn tortillas, little corn tortillas, soft corn tortillas. We are not talking crunchy because that is not authentic. Um, Their chicken is so flavorful. And then the super, I like to get it with the cheese and the salsa and the um, sour cream and, you know, their carnitas and their carne asada, also very, very good. But those chicken tacos, I dream about them. New Zealand has everything except my sisters and tacos. And I am going to eat so many tacos. That's what I'm going to do. That's my full-time job while I'm on vacation is to eat tacos and probably some other things too. But um, but really, it's about the tacos. Also at Tacos Mi Rancho, they have, <laughs> they have this burrito that when my friend Nicole Peeler comes into town from Pittsburgh, which she will actually be in Oakland while I am there, super exciting. I know we're going to go there. I know we're going to get her favorite thing, which is the burrito that is as big as a baby. I have pictures of her cradling the foil wrapped burrito in her arms. It's got to weigh, I don't know, seven pounds. Uh, I, I have no idea. It's so heavy, so huge. It's six meals easily or one and a half if you're very, 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 very hungry and you are determined. So we will get those. We will carry them over to the lake. We will sit on the grass trying to avoid the goose poop and watch all of humanity walk and run and skateboard and what are those scooter things go by in front of us. And that is what I hope I am doing while you are listening to this podcast. So let me give you a little bit of an introduction for Jess Montgomery. Jess is the author of The Kinship Historical Mysteries, set in 1920s Appalachian, Ohio, and inspired by Ohio's true first female sheriff. Under her given name, she writes the Level Up Your Writing Life column for Writer's Digest. She is a three-time recipient of the Individual Excellence Award in Literary Arts from the Ohio Arts Council, a two-time recipient of the Montgomery County Ohio Arts and Cultural District 
Artist Opportunity Grant and has been a John E. Nance writer in residence at the Thurber House in Columbus, Ohio. When she's not writing, she, of course, also loves reading, but also spending time with friends and family, crocheting, watching film and television, swimming, spoiling her cats, baking, and occasionally hiking and fishing. Please enjoy this awesome interview and um, may you have your own taco very soon. (laughs) Happy writing, everybody. Well, I could not be more pleased to welcome you to the show today. Hello there. Will you please tell us your name and your pronouns? Yes, my name is Jess Montgomery. My pronouns are she, her. I'm so happy to have you on the show, Jess. We were connected by our mutual friend, Tiffany, and she's fantastic. And we've already bonded over swimming. Also, I want to say (laughs) that I have just started The Widows and it is like so my jam. It is such beautiful writing and you're taught, you know, it's a, it's a historical thriller set in a town called kinship, but it really is about kinship. And um, (laughs) I think that's just so awesome. And that is a, that's a four book series now, right? Yes. The fourth one just came out. The echoes. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Thank you. So you're obviously prolific. Will you tell us a little bit about your personal process, all its little quirks, when and where and how do you get the work done? Oh, gosh. Uh, I always like to say it's a big old mess until it's not, (laughs) which sounds really glib, but it's true. It's just, it's true. Because I always think, you know, oh, first I'm researching and I'm plotting and then I'm going to write a draft and then I'm going to revise. That's how we envision the perfect process, right? But the truth is I plot a little and then I feel a scene moving in my head and I write that and then oh gosh I need to figure out this character motivation and then and then I write some more and then and truthfully I throw out like for the widows I probably threw out 100 pages I mean I had Mm. a lot of false starts I had um yeah, at least 100 pages because I started from a couple points of view that ended up being characters in the book but but didn't have a point of view. Um, and the project I'm working on now, I was like tallying up the other day. I think I'm on, I think I went through like five false starts, meaning, you know, I'm writing and I'm plotting and I'm character developing and I'm figuring out some research. Um, but then I realized that these pages just aren't working. But what's great is the other day I, uh, was starting my fifth attempt to find my way into this new novel and suddenly things just clicked and it's like a visceral shift it feels so good it sounds so woo woo um I love but it. it's this like it's like the, this literal click like this like oh oh that's what I'm doing and then it it's still rough I mean you know you're still writing rough drafts and revising and throwing things out but um but you know, you're in, you know, you, you know, you are in the right lane, you know, you're in the right boat. Um, fine. Yeah. And so that's kind of my process messy until it's not. <laughs> How do you, and this may be, this, this is a very large, difficult existential question, uh, but it's one I think about a lot because I, I do the same thing with the book that I'm, I've just finished the first draft for. And, you know, the first 27,000 words were not right. And I just threw them out and started over. Mm-hmm. But how do you, how do we as writers differentiate the feeling of knowing we're on the right path, on the wrong path versus just garden variety concern that we're screwing it up? 
well, I think there's always that garden variety concern that we're screwing it all up because yeah. I think most writers are a little insecure. I know I am. <laughs> You're laughing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I think we're born this way and we and it doesn't change, I, yeah. does it? It doesn't. But you know what? I think that's part of what makes us storytellers because we're always asking questions, right? So if we're always asking questions about the world and about the stories we're creating, then we're always going to be questioning ourselves. So there's like the, the positive side of questioning. And then there's the dark side that makes us doubt. Um, so, you know, I just have kind of come to accept that. And I have told people that I have started envisioning, well, a long time ago, I started envisioning like doubt and fear and insecurity. It was like these little trolls, like these mm. little troll babies with the, the hair, with the hair. fluffing up. <laughs> and real maybe really stupid bow in it you know that doesn't match their bow tie and they've got big feet with hairy toes and you know they're saying things to me like you can't do this or why did you think you could do this or you know nobody's going to want to see this you could be doing something practical and so I've learned to just kind of envision these critters and tell them you know that you're welcome to your opinions. That's great. But talk amongst yourselves. Here's a big couch to go sit on. And then I think of this like huge couch that they sink into and now their legs are sticking up and they just look ridiculous. And I'm like, I love oh, that. just sit there, you know, you just, and then I, I go back to work. <laughs> and it's like, so I, I don't try to get rid of it. It's just like, right. okay, you'll, I, you'll have your say, but not right now. I love that. That's real. Thank and you. I love that. I love the idea of them being in the couch that, that, image is so strong. Like, and they can be over there whispering and giggling or, or complaining or kvetching sure. or whatever they want to do, but it yeah. doesn't affect us in that moment. Right. And we don't let them come near the work. Yeah. We don't let them come near the work. And then that separates out knowing that, uh, that your words aren't gold right from yep. the get go. And, you know, that the, 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 I figuring out then what's working or not working and what you're creating is a whole different thing. Um, and I don't like to say, uh, oh, you know, what you're working on is bad or wrong. Cause that's not true. I don't, you know, I don't, I, in the moment I do mind throwing out hundreds of pages. <laughs> oh yes. We minded a lot, yes. right? Yes. And every time I start a new project, I'm like this time, this will be the time. <laughs> Me too. Me too. The hope that writers have. Yes. Yeah. We're we're very optimistic and and not and pessimistic all at the same time. I think this will be the time and then it isn't. And so I've lately started saying to myself, you know, just expect it. This is the process because you're playing, you're making clay and you can't, you can't shape clay until you've made the clay. So Exactly. And, and also I love what you're saying about accepting our process at our, as our process. And I understand that this can be really frustrating to hear for like a brand new writer who's just Mm -hmm. like, I don't know my process yet. But when we're saying this, what we're saying is like, there is no one right way and whatever your way Mm -hmm. ends up looking like my way for 20 plus books has been to say this time, I'm going to write my way to the end. And this time I'm telling you, Jess, like when I was writing this book, I knew I was going to get to the end because I really knew it this time for the first time ever. And I got to 88%, which is of the <laughs> words I want, which is where I always get to. And then mm-hmm. I thought, okay, no, it's time for revision. Cause this is how my process, and I want it to be different, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be. And that's okay. That's right. That's <sighs> right. And I actually think we all kind of have the same process. Ooh, um, 
Yeah, so I get a little frustrated with the question of are you a plotter or are you are you a pantser? And the truth is, we're all both. We're all both. I agree. Yeah, some people, you know, they do sit down and they write out a full outline and they stick to it. I can't imagine doing that, but neither can I imagine having no infrastructure created for myself at all and just confronting the blank page. And so what I think to myself, you know, I hear one extreme or the other is, oh, you're just doing this in a different stage or in a different way than I am, or maybe you're doing it subconsciously, but all of us end up creating an outline, at least metaphorically, and all of us end up pantsing, you know, when we're writing a scene because we're not going to plan out which adjectives we use and which emotions we're going to describe. That kind of crops up naturally, right? So we're all a mix of both. Um, And eventually, and and that's the other reason I say it's all a big mess till it isn't. (laughs) I love that. One of my friends, um, Jay Thorne, pointed out once that he, you know, he does a really detailed outline, maybe 10,000 words of everything that's going to be in the book. That's a lot. Wow. It's a lot. And then his books say, say it's a 90,000 word book. He's like, I've only written you know, about 10% of it. I've still got to, mm-hmm. I've still got to pants 90% of it, you know, 80, 87% yeah. of it. Th- those are the words I'm filling in. And yeah, people who say that they don't think about their book at all and just sit down and write, they do, they know they're writing mm-hmm. a space opera or a contemporary romance. <laughs> you know, they're thinking That's about right. it in their off time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is your um, biggest challenge when it comes to writing? My biggest challenge when it comes to writing, um, probably the barrier of perfectionism. Um, mm-hmm. And that is not to say that I'm perfect because I am by no means perfect, but that I, I fall for the lie <laughs> that we can get to perfect. Yeah. And so when I don't get to, when I inevitably, I don't get to perfect, um, I, you know, beat myself up. Um, so I'm trying to work on letting go of the notion that I have to create something that's perfect for the genre or that's, you know, perfect for whatever criteria I'm imposing on myself and switch instead to, you know, no, you want to do, you want to aim for perfect knowing you're not going to get there a and B what I really want is to be better each book to be better than the one I wrote before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to build on what I've already learned. What do I still need to learn? Um, but that perfectionism, you know, it, it creates procrastination. That's all it really creates. I mean, I did that today. You know, I got home from the pool, knew I needed to <laughs> put some water out in the bird bath because here it's uh 97 degrees with it feels oh. like 104 <laughs> which oh is my really gosh. hot yeah. yeah very very hot for southern Ohio um so I did all that and then I came inside and I managed to find excuses to do this or do that um for about an hour and I thought what are you doing you're you're dithering away your day and I thought oh you're afraid yes you, because you're letting perfectionism like you know, it's going to be a mess when you sit down Uh, because I had a new scene that I needed to to play with and draft that I hadn't, you know, written any words on just yet. And so I put it off and I thought, lectured myself a little bit and said, so the reason you're putting this off is because you know, it's not going to be perfect. You know, it's going to be a mess. So just get in there and 
make a mess. What else you do? You know, it's not like I'm going to go outside and run a mile. I mean, like I would anyway, even if it were, you know, 60 degrees, I wouldn't, I assure you. Um, so, you know, you're in this house, so you might as well, you know, go make a mess. I, so. that is so, I just want your words on a loop in my head. For me, it's always about that fear <laughs> and about wanting it to be something that I can't, you know, I'd like to sit down and make my book good in, you know, 20 or 30 minutes or so. That's what I, that's how I'd like to revise my book. And it's going to be painful to do so. And I don't want pain. I would rather watch Netflix. And so that, <laughs> and that's why writers, as we continue to return to the page again and again, even when it's hard, we get comfortable with the discomfort and we keep going. And that's, that's like, a, that's magic. That's amazing. What is your biggest joy when it comes to writing? When I'm in that groove, when I finally let go, the, the little gnomes are chittering amongst themselves in the big comfy couch behind me. Uh, but I can't even see them because I have fallen into the story world and I, wow. and I have let go of the knowledge that, yeah, you're going to have to go revise this. And also maybe you're not going to use any of it, but I'm in that story world. And that is being in that moment and in that zone. It's, um, it's a, it's a, like, it's a spiritual practice, actually. I think yes. that's why we do come back to it over and over. It's I certainly not agree. for the pay. Um, so it's got to be <laughs> for the spiritual exactly. practice, right? It's a really beautiful and clear way of putting it. It is a spiritual practice. It is a way of meditation and communing with something that is larger than mm -hmm. ourselves, right? Oh, I have goosebumps. Oh. Can you share a craft tip of any sort with us? Mm, a craft tip. Um well, I'm sure, you know, I know that people have said this uh, many times, but it's absolutely the best craft tip is to read, read as much as you can um, and to, you know, look at what works and what, what doesn't. One of my big, you know, challenge points when I was um, a much younger writer was dialogue. I was afraid of writing dialogue. The dialogue I wrote was stilted. At worst, at best, it sounded like it came from a very bad soap opera. My apologies <laughs> to any soap opera fans out there. Um, <laughs> I didn't come from a good soap opera. I came from a bad. Well, soap they're writing opera. a lot of dialogue real fast. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to, hard to make I, that good. I, yeah. So I was writing just really not great dialogue. And, you know, I practiced writing dialogue and then I read craft books about it. But the best way for me to learn was to read really good dialogue. So I read Sue Grafton. I read Tony Hillerman. I watched how, you know, those masters of my genre, the mystery, um, used, uh, used dialogue, not just to convey information, but, you know, to bring their characters to life, to move plot along. So, you know, I think just reading, um, it, it does take away a bit from reading just quote unquote, just for pleasure. Um, but, you know, reading for pleasure plus to look at, you know, how does this person, how are they doing this? And if you're reading something and you think, oh, wow, this isn't great. <laughs> In your opinion, maybe it's not great to ask yourself, why isn't it great? What, how would I revise this? So that's my big craft tip. Do you ever catch yourself when you are in the middle of revision? I have, a, I have a harder time reading books. I mean, I read books all the time, no matter what, but I have a hard time reading, especially fiction. If I'm in the middle of a, a fiction revision, because I'm constantly rearranging their words, I'm like, Oh, my brain has slipped into it, even though this might be a fantastic book. And it is 100% 
fabulous as it is, my brain is still going to want to play with things. Yeah. It can yeah, be I do that. a little yeah. exhausting, but yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. So if I'm in revision wonderful. mode, I'll read something outside of my usual genre or I'll read nonfiction or I'll read, you know, yeah. I'll read memoir. I'll read something like that. I've known people, I haven't done this myself, but especially with dialogue to actually like find those passages that you love another writer has written and then type them out, like write mm-hmm. them into the computer and see how it feels coming through your fingertips. I did a similar thing um, when I was in college, but, but not exactly that. And I can imagine that would be really helpful. I actually, <laughs> after I had our first child, um, I was too exhausted to, to do any writing, like the, you know, three days after I gave birth. I don't know why, but I was. Um, I remember just, you know, she would nap in her little pumpkin seat. I would pull out a novel that I admired and a notepad and a pen, and I would just start copying it because that by got hand, me. I love that you did by, by hand. hand. Yeah. And that way I could just set it aside. And, you know, when she needed attention, uh, I could quickly set it aside and return to paying attention to her. But yeah, I still remember doing that. And actually, at the time, I felt like, gee, is this kind of pathetic or what? But <laughs> I look it's back the best. and I think that was great, you know, because I was staying connected to um, what I wanted to do as a writer, but not neglecting the kiddo I'd just given birth to. And I look back yeah. and it's kind of like one of my you know, favorite memories it was sort of peaceful. That is a really, that's your second great craft tip of the podcast. So thank you for that. I think that would you're be, welcome. <laughs> I love the idea of doing it by hand because I think it reaches our brain in a slower, mm-hmm. different way when we do stuff yeah. like that. I, I want to, I might, I might do something like that soon. Um, what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? In a surprising way. Well, we talked about it a little bit ago, wow. sw- swimming. Tell me more. <laughs> um, so the similarities are, you know, the wanting to get a little bit better than you were before, mm-hmm. um, rec- you know, and be for me kind of getting reacquainted with doing something, you know, not that I'm, you know, know everything about writing, but I've been doing it a long, long time. So um, I'm much more comfortable in words than I am in water sometimes, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just, you know, working on something, um, for the love of it, for the, for the exercise of it, for the joy of it, you know, I'm not going to compete or, you know, win any medals or, um, you know, I mean, even at my local pool, it's like, yeah, no. And I, and I'm perfectly fine with that. So um, it's just this wonderful reminder of, you know, personal best. If you're a little Mm -hmm. bit more confident today than you were two days ago. That's great. Yeah. Um, so it, I've started reapplying, like reconnecting with the joy of doing something for the sake of, you know, again, a spiritual practice. Yeah. I think that that is so, so cool. And honestly, I will be going to the pool after we chat today because you've reinvigorated my need for the water for, for my own particular brain. I, lo- I love a hobby. I know that you're a crafter too, mm-hmm. right? Aren't you a crocheter? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I yeah. crochet. Yeah. It's for me, it's always hard to turn off the entrepreneurial side of my brain. Like, oh, how could, how could I sell a pattern for this or how, and with swimming, (laughs) I'm just swimming and, and I don't want to do anything else. I will never compete in anything. I just Mm want to be in the water getting a little bit better today than I was yesterday. Exactly. It's such a good reminder. (laughs) 
Good stuff. So will you tell us about the best book that you have read recently and why did you love it? Ooh, the best book I have read recently. Um, Well, uh, it's not so recent. It's been a little while, but I have been talking up um, the Office of Historical Corrections. Um, I believe the author is Danielle Evans. And it's a collection of short stories and um, a novella. And the novella is the Office of Historical Corrections. And it's just a brilliant concept. It's just brilliant because, you know, it starts out, oh, okay, there's this Office of Historical Corrections. And what people who work for this government office do is, you know, if the date on the cornerstone of the building sign says, you know, this happened in 1932 and it was really 1933, they go and they file a report and it's amazing. <laughs> and so it starts out, well, that's kind of cute. But then it quickly gets much deeper, much deeper. It goes into social justice issues, um, Black history in the United States, you know, all the whitewashing that's happened with our history um, and the ramifications in personal lives and in these characters' personal lives of, you know, fixing fixing these stories, correcting these, you know, historical plaques or uh, what have you. And it's just, it's brilliant. And it, you know, I I was just stunned by it. That was one where I, Mm. and all the stories are kind of connected in the sense that they're social justice type stories. Um, And that was, you know, a collection that I read and didn't pause to think, you know, Maybe if she'd, you know, done this dialogue a little bit differently. No, you no, couldn't I even pause because you were just could, couldn't even pause. Oh. No, it was it was I recommend it to people all the time. Thank I think you. It's a book that people should read. Thank you. That is absolutely going on to the top of my TBR pile. It sounds wonderful. And also I love when people have these high concepts that I just think, oh wow, how did you think of that? And then exactly. you pulled it off. You stuck the landing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a story that, you know that moves people for all the good reasons that good stories do. You're invested in the characters. You want to see what happens to them. How will this turn out? But at the same time, it, it kind of hits at a deeper level of, oh, I'm going to see the world a little differently now than I did before I read this. And I love that. And that's what literature should be doing for us. Speaking exactly. of literature, let's talk about yours. And um, can you give us a little bit of the, the history behind this? that that you found and then brought into this book and then maybe tell us a little bit about the most recent book. Okay. Um, so, so the series, the kinship historical series feature a um, female sheriff in 1925 in Appalachian, Ohio. You had and, me right there. Like that's all I really needed yeah. to hear. But <laughs> Right. I mean, that's fascinating right away. Um, I certainly thought so, but I will also say I would never in my life have thought to myself, you know, what would make sense? A female sheriff in 1925 in Appalachia. No, that right. would not have occurred to me, <laughs> except I ran across the actual true first female sheriff in Ohio. In 1925, a woman named Maud Collins, who uh, became sheriff when her husband was killed in the line of duty. There was no mystery as to his death. He was shot in the middle of a street because the guy who was serving a traffic warrant to didn't didn't want to be served a traffic warrant. Um, But of course, I'm a writer. So my imagination said, wait a minute. 
what if there was a mystery? What if, you know, his wife who worked in real life, worked for him as um, the jail matron decided, you know, it was offered the job, which is what happened in real life as well to fill in. Um, and what if she needed to solve this? And, and what can we say about community and workers' rights and women's issues and coal mining and, you know, all of that? Um, and it's been a fascinating journey because um, the big sweeping issues of the day back in the 1920s really touched people in the most rural areas um, in big ways. Um, whether it was workers' rights, women's rights, prohibition, bootlegging, you name it. Um, racism, uh, anti-immigration attitudes, all that played out. But of course, it's not particularly well documented in rural areas. So it was interesting to kind of delve into that um, and, and bring that bring that to life. I'll, I'll just note that, so Maude Collins was the first female sheriff. We now have female sheriffs, five and six <laughs> in the state of Ohio. It's taken us this long to have six. Wow. Um, the sixth lady uh, was a deputy sheriff. She was, is a lesbian and had a boss who was against her orientation, fired her <gasps> in, in one of the, yeah. in one of the most conservative counties in the state of Ohio. And she's like, fine, I'm going to run for your job. Oh, and my she God, that's did. amazing. <laughs> and she won. <laughs> it was like, so exciting. I, I like, love yes. that. So oh, I love much. that. So progress happens, but yeah. really slowly. Really slowly. Um, hundred. That's almost 100 years ago that the first, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we have 88 counties, you know. <gasps> And I read an interview with one of the current sheriffs. I can't remember which one, um, but she commented that in the United States, there are 60 female sheriffs. Now there are deputy sheriffs. Thousands of cops, counties. There, yeah, there are cop, female yeah. cops. There are, you know, police chiefs, but among sheriff, county sheriffs, there are 60. And the, and the Which, interesting thing about that is that that is a voted in position and everything else is appointed, but that right. one is voted. So it is a really interesting reflection of what is around them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting to explore all that. <laughs> I love that. I can't wait to read more of the first one as I get into the series, because I like to read in order. Um, will you tell us a little bit about, tell us the title again and about the most recent release? The most recent is The Echoes. It just came out um, and it's set in 1928 and it's inspired by PTSD to some to a large degree um, because it involves veterans from the, what they would have called the Great War and an amusement park um, set up for veterans and their families um, in the county where I have my stories set. Now, amusement park isn't um, Ferris wheels and roller coasters back in 1928. It's uh, um, somewhat ironically shooting ranges, you know, archery, you know, <laughs> ranges. Um, yeah. It's a pool, it's a dance floor. And we ran across a similar amusement park um, probably about 25 years ago. My husband and I and our were taking our little girls hiking in a local metro park. We came across um, 
hey, wait, this doesn't look like stones that would be on the forest floor. This looks like, like laid out pavers. What's going on here? Oh, look at that. That looks like, you know, an old uh, rail car um, <laughs> frame. And sure enough, it was the remnants of an amusement park. Wow. that had been built in the 20s by a veteran of the Great War. They call the guy was a veteran of the New Sargon battle, which is a horrific bloody battle from um, World War I. And I thought it was interesting. He named it the Argonne Memorial Park. Mm. And he wanted to build it for veterans from our area who'd fought in that battle. Um, and also his best friend died in like an hour before armistice. Oh. Like, on November 11th at like 10 a.m., oh, he oh. was killed by a German sniper. I know it's just like what really, and I found that out because I was so fascinated 20 plus years ago by this park that I ended up writing an article for the newspaper about it, and I guess it stayed with me because when it was time to write this book, I thought you know I'm going to explore that, um, and of course that means bringing in PTSD, even though it would not have been called that in 1928. It was called shell shock um, then, right? Yeah, shell shock. Um, and my dad was a veteran of World War II. Um, he was a BAR man, which, you know, has a life expectancy of about, a, you know, 10 minutes. I mean, it's really, mm -hmm. a, you know, frontline uh, army guy. And he too lost uh, his assistant gunner due to sniper mm. fire. And we actually went to Normandy to see where his assistant gunner had been buried um, uh, years ago. And, you know, my dad fought, he was like 19 to 22 when he fought. And I was a late in life kid um, for him. And so like in the like late seventies, um, I would hear him crying out as a little girl, but I'd hear oh, him wow. crying out from nightmares. And, you know, I was just told, well, he's just having a nightmare. And it wasn't until like eh, maybe 20 or so years later that he admitted those oh, dreams about World War II. And oh he was God. in his 90s, like his early 90s, when he said, you know, I, uh, I know I've always kind of tried to poo-poo this idea of PTSD, um, but I think I have suffered from it. Um, because he, yeah and it was interesting to see this you know good old boy tough guy kind of 70 years later go you know it's not as bad as it was when I was 20 you know or 30 or 40 but it's still with me and I think it'll go with me to the grave mm -hmm. and so I thought okay I really want to explore the notion of of what we call PTSD but look at how it plays out, you know, the echoes of the war 10 years later mm. uh, in my sheriff's life, in the lives of veterans that are in this story. And but also explore how that plays out when it's completely not acknowledged, when there is no treatment, when we don't give it a name, when mm -hmm. we, you know, because I think we should uh, as much as we can and as much as individuals are comfortable with talk about mental health issues and name them. And not shame them, you know, something so that you're, really you're modeling so incredibly beautifully right now is both the, both the, 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 this toolbox that is so helpful for writers, which is curiosity mixed with compassion. Like you were in mm. a park 20 years ago and looking at the ground <laughs> and instead of what many people would have just gone, huh, there's a paper there. They never would have thought about it again. You 
found it fascinating. You saw the boxcar, you did the research, you put this thing into your brain, which you can then pull out later and then use the compassion that you have around wars and rumors of wars and, and the real people that you have known that this has affected. Mm. And you put this in this book. I can't wait to read oh, this one. Oh, that is thanks. so <laughs> cool. Will you tell us a little bit um, too, uh, right before we um, wind this up about level up your life for writer's digest? Oh, yes. I, I, cannot, I cannot believe still, it's been a year and a half that I get to say, <laughs> I write a regular column for the Writer's Digest. Writer's Digest, level because, up your writing life. Yeah, yeah. Yes, level up your writing life. It is an honor to write this column. Um, Writer's Digest, you know, in all honesty, is that was my long-term MFA <laughs> reading yes, every issue, cover to cover. It's great. And um, I, I, the column is about a craft idea, like a craft tip of say dialogue. We'll pick that one and tips about dialogue, but then it's, it then kind of flips, flips it a little and says, okay, and how about you, dear writer? How are you talking to yourself? Or if the, the craft tip has to do with the element of setting, um, so I'll write about that. And then it flips to, oh, and how about you, dear writer? How can you improve your setting so that you can, you know, pursue your craft? So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great honor to write um, and be part of that community. And that's your, under your other name, Sharon. Under Just, my name, Sharon Short. Yes, that's right. So, so when people put those two things together, they will know that it is all you. And that is, yeah, Writer's <laughs> Digest has, has blown me away so many times. And, um, and I've spoken at a couple of their conferences and I just think that they are so well run and so well organized and mm-hmm. yeah, fantastic. It has been such a pleasure talking to you, Jess. This has been such a treat and I'm so glad that we were connected in this way. Thank you for sharing all this amazing stuff with us. Where can we find you out there on the internet? Well, thank you for having me. And you can find me on the internet at um, jessmontgomeryauthor.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Happy writing to you. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>